Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. I'm Jessica Knoll, and Will is on the road this week in Orlando. Will, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? So, Jessica, I'm at a podcast convention. It's called Podcast Movement. And people who produce and host and touch podcasts of all stripes are here, but definitely a lot of true crime folks. uh, And we're here to talk about True Crime Chronicles and also an upcoming show called Bardstown that's launching in just a few weeks. We'll be talking more about that. So that's why I'm here. But let's talk about the case we're covering today. So this case is in a part of the country in New Hampshire that you're pretty familiar with, right? Yeah, the town where this takes place. Conway, New Hampshire, and neighboring town, North Conway, New Hampshire. Uh, I've spent a, a good amount of time in those parts. Uh, it's roughly midway up the state, close to the main border, a few hours away from Boston. It is a ski town in the wintertime. There are you know, a lot of outlets and shopping and restaurants along the main drag of North Conway. But Conway, which you get to uh, first if you're coming from the south, is, is really just a quaint, small, beautiful area. And the main figure of the story, Abby Hernandez, is just a 14-year-old girl growing up, living in this little town. Uh, some people, some of her friends describe her as a little bit on the quiet side, but from everything we know about Abby back then, she was a, you know, a good student, um, lived with her mom and sister uh, at a condo uh, just not far off Main Street. So that's sort of the background of this story. Let's get into what happened to Abby Hernandez. You will be able to start driving in April, and since I hope you're home by then, I plan to hitch rides with you like any normal friend, joking of course. I promise when you get home, I'll take us out for ice cream if you can drive us. In early 2014, a group of friends posted a video to YouTube and to a website called bringabbyhome.com. We just really want you to be back home because we really miss that part of our life. We miss the Abby, we miss the jokes, we just, I miss trying, I miss you teaching me how to play some random Beatles song on guitar. These are their voices, simple, even lighthearted thoughts passed along to a friend, a friend who went missing more than five months earlier. We really, really want you home, everybody. The hope was that Abby would see or hear their voices. But in the winter of 2014, Abby Hernandez was nowhere near a computer or able to reach out on her own. She was trapped inside a box. She was a long way from October 2013 when she left school and headed home. Abby Hernandez is used to walking home from school. On October 13, 2013, the 14-year-old leaves Kennett High School in Conway, New Hampshire and begins the familiar route. She left high school Kennett High School that day and was walking down the path and uh, was expected to go home. The small New Hampshire town, just a few hours from Boston, gets busy when the vacation crowds and skiers 
and leaf peepers come in droves. Nearby North Conway sits nestled in the Mount Washington Valley, and in the fall, the Main Street, with its stores and restaurants, becomes a popular getaway for people all over. But for the most part, it's pretty quiet, and Abby's walk home to the condo where she lives with her mom and sister is familiar. It's fall in New England, the leaves are changing, and Abby might look like a lot of teens on our way home, dressed that day in a gray sweater and black pants. But when Abby doesn't turn up at home, her mom is concerned. Concerned enough that she calls police later that day. You know, her mom said that this was very unusual. Uh, You know, she wasn't answering her phone. Uh, There was just no sign of her, no mention to friends where she was going, what she was doing. So her mom was pretty concerned, and obviously the police were concerned at that point, too. An hour and a half away in Portland, News Center Maine reporter Chris Rose hears about the missing girl. Well, I, I remember that day specifically because there was a report of a missing uh, girl. Uh, I think she was 12 or 13 at the time. And at first, these things happen a lot, the runaways, you know, fight with the family, with the mom, whatnot, and they take off for a while. So at first, we didn't put a lot of stock into it. The station's managing editor, Ted Varapatis, also hears the news. I remember when it first broke, and I think, you know, the, uh, the cynicism and the, uh, the, the older... You know, the journalists who've seen it all type of thing. Not that I don't sound like a jerk, but, um, you know, they say, okay, she's run away, and, you know, after a day or two, she'll come back, and this will all go away. So maybe it's just a case of a young girl on the run. Maybe issues at home or in her personal life. And so, but after about three or four days, when she hadn't come back, and we started hearing the stories from her friends that said, this is atypical. She did not have any drug issues. She did not have any mental health issues. You know, she would not do this. There is something terribly wrong. I think the fact that, to the person, everybody said that she is, you know, not the type that would cause trouble. She was a good student. She, she never, you know, she would always tell her parents or her mom where she was going. So I think that was sort of like an early red flag that that's, this might be a different case. It doesn't take long for the story to take on more urgency. We started receiving calls about how there was a pretty large size search going on in the woods, the railroad tracks, some of the mountain areas around there. So once we realized how much effort the police were putting into looking for her, it seemed to be uh, a little more serious than your typical runaway case. So we headed up there about an hour and 20, 25 minutes out of Portland. So we sent a crew up there, uh, get up there kind of mid-afternoon, and there was quite an extensive search going on. They had ATVs going through some of the woods back behind her house. It turned into a situation where, uh, at least for the first several days, Uh, since she was last seen there were searches going on every day and it turned into a point where they also started holding daily news conferences the only thing we want in this is Abigail's safe return Um, Abby if you're out there and you hear this message or you see this message please call the police department your family or friends. It would be the FBI was involved. There was a specific agent who was uh, assigned to the case. There was the local Conway police chief. There was someone from the New Hampshire Attorney General's office. It's our hope that Abby is still alive 
and that she is out there and that she can hear this, she can see her mom and she can hear her mother's words. And Abby's mom would be there with some other relatives. So every day outside the Conway, New Hampshire Police Department, there would be pretty much a daily news conference that went on for several days. Abby disappeared on Wednesday, October 9th, between three and four in the afternoon from a busy location in North Conway, New Hampshire. Somebody knows about what happened. There are people that you interact with on a daily basis that may have changed their behavior from that day forward. We ask you to please come out with any tips and information. And then after that, they turned into kind of weekly updates. They would all of a sudden call on a Thursday afternoon, we're doing another update. And mainly it was just uh, them asking anyone to come forward who might have some information. It was an opportunity for them to talk to the media so that we would get the, her picture out again. And basically the mom uh, asking Abby to come home and that, you know, we miss you, we love you, um, we hope you're safe, and, you know, we want you to come back home. To anybody out there who knows anything or noticed anything, or like um, if you noticed any change in Abby, those kids who knew Abby, just come out and um, let us know. But there aren't any signs of anything unusual or changes in Abby's behavior. Well, she actually seemed to be more happy lately, like more outspoken than usual. Like she was. I don't know, she's kind of a quiet person, and lately she was just kind of happy, and she just, I don't know, smiled more than usual. Abby's mom, Zenia Hernandez, becomes a familiar face outside the New Hampshire town. It, it was hard, you know, but she put up a strong front. Um, every night, you know, in those news conferences, she was there and um, she was pleading with, um, you know, her daughter or anyone who saw any, anything or knew anything about the case, you know, to come forward. Abby, come home. We miss you. Um, so she put up a really strong front during that whole time. And as I can imagine, um, she had another daughter at home that she was taking care of. And it must have been really tough on her um, just having to go through that. The local community rallies around the family. You know, I'm sure some of the reward money that was offered came from the community and there were fundraisers for the family and they would bring her food because, you know, who can think about sitting down and cooking and eating when all this is going on. So the way the community rallied, and it is such a small community, made you think, okay, this, this is maybe not your typical runaway. But doubts linger. Maybe she left town on her own. So at that point, there was some still thought, even though there was this police presence, maybe she was just a runaway and, you know, was hiding out somewhere for a while. Um, there were all kinds of rumors about what may have happened. And um, so that was kind of the tone that it was, it was hard as from a news standpoint, there was still some thought that maybe she did run away and this wasn't, uh, you know, there was no criminal involvement at this point. But no one had seen her that day. No clues, no evidence, no indication of what had happened. She is not out there alone. She has somebody who is either helping her, whether that be a friend or what we fear is a foe. Abby, I keep having a dream where you come home and I give you the biggest hug ever. I know in my heart this dream means something and that it matters. But in early November, police get their first break in the case. 
a sign that Abby is still alive. It's a letter, presumably written by Abby to her mom. But police are tight-lipped. The letter could be critical to finding Abby, and they're not ready to share that information. It would be a few more weeks before the letter is released to the public. That was kind of the first big break in the case, that it seemed that it wasn't Abby's handwriting and that at least several months into this case that she was still alive and she was still out there. And I think it still kept some people guessing about whether she was being held against her will or whether she took off on her own because, um, you know, the letter just was talking about, you know, she's doing okay, she's safe. And, uh, you know, so I think it brought up more questions than provided answers at that point. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. That's greenlight.com odyssey. When we received this letter, I will tell you it was unprecedented. We have not seen anything like that in recent time in other investigations, but most importantly, it gave us hope. The reason that we are announcing today that we have it is because law enforcement had to take every possible step to verify if its authenticity. And at this juncture, we believe that it was, in fact, written by Abby and was sent to her mother. The other reason that we did not disclose this earlier is that this was a critical lead for law enforcement. The letter suggests that she's okay, not in any danger, but not everyone trusts the letter. And just the way it was written, it seemed a little bit strange that um, some of the things in there were clear sign, yeah, this was Abby, but there were other parts about that letter that seemed a little off for her daughter. But the letter doesn't lead anywhere. No fingerprints, nothing. And the weeks drag on. Yeah, a lot of time went by, and as time went on, you know how it is with these cases, it gets harder and harder to solve and um, tougher to, you know, figure out what happened. And it was basically, there was just no trace of her. And it just, you know, every search came up empty. And as the months and months passed, I think a lot of people obviously assumed that she was dead. I think a lot of people just thought, she was dead, and they were searching for a body, not an actual live human being. October turns into November. Leaves cover the ground. Families make plans to gather for Thanksgiving. And Abby's mother, Zenya, keeps asking for help. Next week brings Thanksgiving. And the greatest Thanksgiving that Zenya, Sarah, and this team could have is to have her home with her family. I feel your absence every day. You belong at home with me. Abby, you're a strong young woman, and I'm staying strong for you. As December rolls around, police make another plea to the public. Part of the reason that we chose today is that the holidays are coming up. People may be coming back to the area that haven't been here since the Columbus Day weekend, but we need her picture to go beyond the community in the event that she is beyond the community, if somebody has seen her beyond the community. Reporter Chris Rose gets to know more about the family. He learns more about Abby, and he's invited into their home. 
Her mother invited us over the house. This was several months after she was last seen. And a lot of her classmates were making posters. And I don't know if it was her birthday, but it was a special event. And I think it was her birthday. And they came over the house and they were making posters and, um, you know, just to let her know that they were thinking about her. And, you know, some of the media was invited to, you know, do this as a story. And I remember that's the first time I really, like, got to know her mom. Her mom invited me in the house and um, we spoke to her and we spoke to some of her classmates. And I distinctly remember as we were leaving, um, her mom showed me the porch light and she left a little note there, like welcoming her home. And I thought just from covering this for several months that, you know, I just at that point, I didn't see her coming home again. I thought, you know, she was gone, whatever happened to her. The new year arrives and life goes on for people in Conway, New Hampshire. But for Zenia Hernandez and Abby's family and friends, there's no relief. The passing of weeks and months only conspires against them. A slow, painful watching of more days without Abby. And there are no more letters in Abby's handwriting. The first and only real break happened months earlier, and it's far too quiet. On May 9, 2014, a $10,000 reward is offered for any information. And on April 15, the FBI adds 20000 to that reward. Eventually, Abby's father doubles the reward, bringing it up to $60,000. Spring comes and goes. Summer arrives. Before long, over just a few months, it will be a year since Abby went missing. It's an anniversary no one wants to mark or acknowledge. And then, on Sunday, July 20th, 2014, over nine months since she disappeared heading home from school, Abby Hernandez comes home. She's wearing the same clothes she was wearing when she disappeared. What I recall about what happened that day, she just all of a sudden showed up at her mother's home and came walking through that door that the mom had left the light on and the note for her that I had mentioned I saw and said, she's not coming home, but sure enough, she did. So as dramatic as this case was and as the searches that went on and the investigation, the way it ended, she just came walking up that driveway and went up into the apartment that she shared with her mom and sister and was back home. Back at the station in Portland, Maine, managing editor Ted Varpatis starts hearing that Abby's been found. The day they found her, there was quite a bit of confusion. And it wasn't, I'm not singling out any media, there was a lot of confusion in general. Um, that she was found, that her body was found. So the initial reaction was, Oh, that's so sad they found her, but at least there's some closure for the mom and the family. And then, as the day passed, it was, it was a very short amount of time, like maybe an hour later, and it was right before news time. And I just remember because it was, there was a mad scramble to try to confirm the information before 5 p.m. when everybody was going on the air. And I think in the 5 o'clock shows that day, the reports were that she had been found and people left it, the media left it at that because they were not sure. And then about a half hour later, when she had been found alive, that's when the news broke during the newscast. And I just, I remember, I remember the news, our newsroom gasping, like when they heard the story because nobody thought she was still alive because it had been so many months. And there was an audible gasp in the newsroom, just, wow, you know, they found her. And it was just an overwhelming feeling of joy and relief and I don't think you can put into words 
the happiness I felt. Through the New Hampshire Attorney General's office, Zenya Hernandez released this statement. Today, we are the happiest people on earth. I was very happy, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have two kids and I could just imagine what her parents, the relief. I mean, I would have been crying every hour of every day. Abby is alive. She's home. But no one really knows yet what happened to her over those long nine months. Investigators have provided no details about what happened to Abby Hernandez or where she's been all these months. Police call this an ongoing criminal investigation. I just want to know if there's somebody out there snatching kids or um, she left on her own. I want to know if my world is safe. Behind the scenes, though, police are learning the horrible truth of Abby's ordeal. Kidnapped in broad daylight on her walk home from school and taken to a storage shed. Kept there for all those months, suffering daily abuse. And so there was that sort of initial moment of jubilation. And then when the details came out about what she went through, it was very um, somber. Uh, you know, it took a little while to get all the information. It came out uh, over the next few days, the living in the, the little box in the yard and, you know, being under constant surveillance and what she had gone through physically and emotionally. So, it, you know, it, it had a happy ending, sort of. Well, at first there wasn't a lot of talk about what happened to her, but soon the investigation uh, continued into what happened and we started to learn just a, a horrific existence that she went through over those several months. She was kept in a large storage container on Nate Kibbe's property. She was tortured. She was kept in a dog collar. She was electric shocked. She was sexually assaulted, and this went on for several months, and uh, it was just awful. But 14-year-old Abby had endured. She did everything she could to keep her captor on her side, whatever it took to stay alive inside that dark metal prison. I don't think she knew exactly where she was. There were times when she was blindfolded, and there were times when she wasn't. Um, you know, afterwards she described how she tried to kind of get inside his head a little bit, try to, um, you know, encourage him to make friends with him so maybe there would be an opportunity where, you know, he, his oversight of her would be lax at some point and she might be able to get away. So, you know, after a while, and I'm sure after being horrified about where she was and what was going on, she started to kind of get into a situation where, you know, how can I get out of this? And, and you know, the first thought is, I need to get him to trust me that I'm not gonna run away. So some of that went on um, while she was being held captive. And along the way, she picked up clues, clues she would eventually share with police, enough to tell police about her captor and provide critical information. On July 24th, police release a sketch of the suspect. And then days later, on July 28th, Police show up at the home of 34-year-old Nathaniel Kibbe. His property is in Gorham, New Hampshire, about 30 minutes away from Conway. It's actually not the first time they've dealt with Kibbe. I think he was one of these kind of guys who was like, um, you know, the First Amendment and I have the right to have all these guns and anti-government. And I, I recall that he actually gathered up a lot of his weapons and brought them to police. And they thought that was a little strange, you know, so he's trying to kind of get rid of any reason for the police to come to his property and search it, knowing that he had this young lady being held captive. Kibby is taken into custody and charged with one count of felony kidnapping and held on a million-dollar bond. 
and we start to learn how Abby made it home alive. He knew that police were coming for him. Um, and of all things, he paid a woman for sex with counterfeit money. So apparently he had been counterfeiting money. And he knew that this woman had gone to the authorities and he knew that they were coming for him. He had been in trouble before um, with the police and authorities. Um, so they knew him. He was on their radar. He just wasn't on their radar for kidnapping Abby. So Kibby was spooked. He had paid someone for sex with counterfeit bills, and she told him she was going to the police. He realized any day now they're coming for me, and I can't have this girl being held kidnapped on my property. So all of a sudden, um, the way that she portrayed it, Abby, that he just all of a sudden said, get in the car, we're leaving, got her in the car, drove her up on, you know, a road in the middle of the woods and opened the door and told her to get out. She got out and he sped off. That was it. Her deal was over. Managed to walk back home and walk back into her house. We learned that on that October day when she vanished, she had accepted a ride home from school with him. But instead of taking her home, he drove her to a nearby Home Depot and pointed a gun at her. It would be 284 days before Abby would be free again. In 2015, Nathaniel Kibbe goes to trial, facing more than 200 charges. Nathaniel Kibbe's defense team is asking that a large chunk of evidence be tossed out and statements made by their client be dismissed. He proved to be incredibly arrogant in court and even accused, asked that the judge be taken off the case because the judge was not impartial. Uh, because he made critical comments. Kibbe spent the afternoon listening intently to both parties, smiling and shaking his head when any mention of allegations that he threatened the victim was brought up by the prosecution. I remember him saying that the district attorney was was corrupt and the judge in the case was corrupt and asked that the charges be thrown out and and that he wasn't getting a fair trial. Among items to be tossed out by the defense, they say 55 pieces of evidence gathered over 10 searches of Kibbe's property, which include a mask, firearms, hard drives, and cell phones. In addition, the defense wants other evidence, including the victim's medical and therapy records predating the alleged kidnapping to be released. The state argues records involving the victim's mother are not necessary and records pertaining to the victim as a young child do not pertain to this case. The defense disagrees. This wasn't an isolated incident, this charge that Mr. Kibbe faces. This is an allegation that spans the course of nine months. There are things that were going on that predate the allegation that could, you know, be argued that were in relation to motive or her reason to leave home. And there are important things that are going to be in the, or in the DCYF records in relation to her appearance, her persona, and all of those things upon her return home, which are absolutely imperative for Mr. Kibbe to um, be able to prepare his theory of this case. The motions are denied, the trial moves forward, and Kibbe is ultimately sentenced to life in prison for his crimes. While Nathaniel Kibbe lives out his days behind bars, Abby Hernandez spends hers in freedom. Abby's mom stays in touch with Chris Rose and Ted Varapatis at News Center Maine in Portland. She tells them she's doing well today, considering what Abby went through. She has a child of her own now. And for Chris and Ted, the case stays with them for all sorts of reasons. I left the news business, um, and then a strange thing happened to me. I received a phone call from my 18-year-old daughter who told me that she just was hired to do an episode of ABC's 2020. And when I asked her what it was about, 
I almost fell out of my seat. She said, I'm portraying Abby Hernandez. So that opened up a window for me to reach back out to Xenia, her mom, Abby's mom, um, just to say this weird coincidence just happened. My daughter is playing your daughter. So we had a long conversation, Xenia and I did, about how everything's going. And, um, you know, Xenia was very pleased with the coverage that we did. I mean, as a journalist, I wanted to be the one that got the interview. So, you know, you, you open those lines of communications, but at some point, human emotions set in. And you say to yourself, do, do I really want to like manipulate this poor woman into doing an interview? Or do I want to try to help her get through this process? And I don't mean just me, I mean reporters who had been in touch with her. We had our reporter, Chris Rose, who's been, who was a 30 year veteran is one of the most trusted reporters in Maine. He covered some of the story, a good chunk of it. And she gained trust in him and in me. And she's continued to keep those lines of communication open to this day. Um, just letting me know that she's doing okay, that Abby's doing okay. And um, it, was, it made me feel good to know that she trusted us. Even if though I didn't get the story, I, I didn't feel sad about that. I just felt like at least we were able to do our small little part to make this horrible situation that she went through slightly better. She acknowledged us for not showing up on her door and banging on the, you know, it's, it, I get that that's part of the job and sometimes it has to be done, but it just didn't seem like this was one of those cases. I mean, if she wants to talk about it, she'll talk about it. I just look back from the beginning to the end that, you know, what started out as, oh, this is probably just a runaway to, wow, this is a real serious case. Look at all the resources, the FBI, the attorney general's office, the local police, the New Hampshire state police, all the effort that they're putting into this. There's got to be something going on. It's not just a runaway. And then as time went on, you know, everyone thought, boy, this girl is like not coming home. She's somewhere dead in the woods or you know that's why no one knows where she is and then for her to come walking through her mother's door one day and then to learn about the horrific story about how she's been held captive in a small new hampshire town in a storage shed all of these months and you know live to tell about it and put that guy behind bars where he belongs it's just it's just an incredible story So one thing that, that really struck me in this story is just how really courageous Abby was through this whole ordeal. I mean, nine months um, being held captive, and she was, she's, was able to survive. The treatment of Abby Hernandez and what she went through is just unspeakable. And yeah, I mean, the fact that she survives, the fact that she kept her wits about her, um, the fact that she was able to, you know, as best she could not alienate him, knowing that her only chance of survival was to maybe somehow keep him uh, on her side. And at the same time, going through what none of us can imagine. Here's this 14 year old girl, uh, you know, from a small town in New Hampshire. She doesn't know where she is. And I mean, this is almost, I mean, nine, almost 10 months, but a year of living in conditions like that. It, it's unthinkable. We'll be back next week with a new story and a new case. But first, here's a sneak peek at our latest Vault Studios project, Bardstown. Growing up here and dealing with everything that's going on now, it's like, I'm surprised this town's even standing. 
I know everybody, so it's hard to also to think that somebody here in my town could would do such a thing. Bardstown, Kentucky is a small town in the heart of the bluegrass state. The kind of town you can wander around in for a few hours and feel like you're back in time. But Bardstown, Kentucky also has secrets. Five unsolved murders over four years. We're getting desperate. It's too silent. The police car is sitting in the middle of the road with the lights on. I believe somebody's hitting. We were an innocent family that got caught up in a nightmare. I'm not forgiving nobody to kill my, murder my granddaughter and my son. If I have to go to hell for that, I guess I'll go because I'm not forgiving them. Hundreds of police interviews and years of investigation. Rumors and theories, and still no one is behind bars. I've been 100% truthful. Listen to what I'm saying. You listen to what I'm saying. I've been 100% truthful. Are the Bardstown cases connected? Why is a killer still on the loose? People in Bardstown want answers. Can you tell if he is breathing? No, sir, he is not breathing. Bardstown, a new podcast from Vault Studios, launches Wednesday, August 28th. It's been, you know, almost six years, and there's still, you know, there's still not a lot of answers. It leaves a pretty, it leaves a pretty big vacuum.